Lord, as we quiet our hearts right now, I want to just take a moment to specifically pray for our children downstairs. And I want to just ask that you bless them and their time together learning about you, that your love would pour out upon our children and they would know more and more about how much they are cared for deeply by you. And that, Lord, they would learn the scriptures, they would learn the gospel through each week gathering. And I just thank you so much for the team of people downstairs who are doing everything they can to bless the children that are part of this community. Thank you. I also want to ask that you would speak to us, each individually and corporately, Lord. That, Lord, you would draw us into your presence through your word and help us to hear clearly the words you have for us. Lord, I pray you guide my thoughts and my mind as I share the things you've directed me to reflect on this morning. That it would come through gentle and lowly as you are gentle and lowly with us. You humbled yourself in Jesus to come and meet us where we are, Lord, and I just thank you for that. I pray as we reflect on what can be weighty things for us, that, Lord, you would direct us over the next few minutes and time, Lord, that you would direct us back to your hope. You would direct us back to your comfort. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. One of these lines from, uh, it's from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia that always stands out to me, it's in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, is the line when they're stuck in winter, and it's this line that you hear the beavers say, it's always winter, but never Christmas. They're stuck before Christmas, which in the context of Narnia is a real bummer, because they're not getting to celebrate this wonderful thing of Christmas. And... You know, for me, I just was thinking back to earlier this week, we had all these warm days where it was like, oh, first day of spring, oh, it's coming, oh, it's warming, it's thawing out, wow, there's puddles everywhere, but the puddles go away, it's starting to feel great, and then it snows. And now, this could just be the not familiar Albert, Albertan originally from the States, that could be it, but what I think I've learned about Albertans that even though you're tough stuff, you do get discouraged still. You do get discouraged still. And so when it snows, right or wrong, you can't help but feel a little bummed by it. And I think that makes sense. I've noticed in myself over the past little while, um, even before the thought, that something cumulatively was catching up with me. Like I, I started to feel like, you know, I, I noticed, wow, I'm feeling more down than I normally am. Maybe some of you have felt that way. Started feeling a little down. Maybe things are catching up with me. Maybe I'm too busy. Maybe I'm not practicing rest the way I should. But I started to feel a little more down. And so then what I started to do, I started going on walks. I was like, okay, I've got to do something about this. I'm going to get out and walk every day. I'm going to make sure I'm getting a little more sleep. I'm trying to get at what's happening. But it's a cumulative effect. I think about that personally, how I've experienced that. And I wonder how you, how you are today. And then I think of some of these verses um, that I see Paul writing in this letter we're going to be looking at this morning where he uses the language of, oh, I'm overflowing with joy and distress. Now, I, you know, I, you just don't encounter people that say those kinds of things in life. I'm, over, I'm overflowing with joy in the midst of distress. Or something else he says is, my joy knows no bounds. Whenever you read some of these letters from Paul in the Bible, you are reading the words of someone who is deeply suffering, deeply struggling and striving in the midst of adversity. 
And so for me, one of the questions that I want to ask with you this morning is this question of how. How do you get to joy in the midst of all the bad? How do you get to joy? The first thing that it helps, because as part of this series in Lent, I've been in different books, which could easily be confusing when you jump around a lot of ways, is I need to kind of orient us around this letter. So we're not in 1 Corinthians. If you're looking at 1 Corinthians, that's not the right book. 2 Corinthians. But part of these letters that Paul writes are that he's writing them to churches. Corinthians, the church in Corinth, is a church that Paul essentially helped found. You see, he first visited Corinth in Acts 18, and when he visits Acts 18, he basically becomes a father to them. He becomes a father to them, basically saying, I'm going to nurture you and guide you and direct you into the love of Jesus Christ. And so he meets them, but then when he leaves to continue in all his missionary journey, things go bad. All things come apart. Like, it does not go well. He starts to hear all these things happening. He sends Timothy, which is like his, his mentee, to kind of put fires out. And that's where you get 1 Corinthians, if that makes sense. 1 Corinthians is basically Timothy is the emissary of 1 Corinthians. And basically like, Timothy, can you help patch things together? It's not going good. Paul goes himself after that. And 2 Corinthians happens after things are not more than just getting out of hand. They seem dire. Deep sorrow is setting in in this community, and we're going to learn why. Paul makes a visit, doesn't like how it goes. He keeps going through persecution. Even the verse 5, chapter 7, verse 5, tells us what Paul is going through, where he says, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us with the coming of Titus. One of the other things I need to mention that already has happened before 2 Corinthians is that probably Paul has written another letter, but it's not a letter that we actually have a record of. That Paul most likely wrote a letter that was a hard letter. Not the kind of letter that you really want to find yourself writing. It's the kind of letter you almost kind of worry what were the consequences of. How would this letter be received? I don't know if you've ever written a hard letter like that before. But he sent a letter basically saying, I'm not okay with what's going on. You're rejecting the gospel. You're rejecting Christ. And it hurts me. And you must come back to the Lord. But anything I say really is more conjecture, piecing together things in 2 Corinthians, because we don't actually have a copy of it. But he basically says that 2 Corinthians is the follow-up to that letter. I hope I haven't lost you there. 2 Corinthians is after the hard letter. Does that make sense? I want to make sure. 2 Corinthians is after the hard letter. And 2 Corinthians, all throughout this letter, he's just basically overwhelmed with joy and distress. Because he was really worried that when he sent that letter, things would go very bad. Very bad. When he wrote the sorrowful letter, you have to kind of infer how much of a challenge it meant. And then, at the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, the verse will be up here. He tells you what was going on with him emotionally. 2 Corinthians 2 says this, I wrote as I did, so when I came down, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you and that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. He mentions tears. He mentions grief, but he put it all on paper so that their love would be deepened. 
their love would be deepened. He did not want to tear down. He wanted to build up and deepen these people he's come to deeply love. In this section of chapter 7, he also reflects on this letter. And what he talked about is he wrote it and he immediately regretted it. He thought he just went torch on his, these people he loved. And instead, something amazing happened. So the setup for this morning's message is this. As we reflect about suffering and joy, what I want you to hear, and maybe if your mind drifts, or Chris, you're kind of wandering from me a little bit. Okay, let me go back to this thought. Go back to this thought. Christ and his grace turns our sorrows to joy. Christ and his grace turns our sorrows into joy. You already heard me say it, and I'll say it again. God comforts the downcast. He pours out his love on the afflicted, all of us. To whatever extent or however we are afflicted, he pours our love out on us. But it's not necessarily by removing the source of the sorrow, by removing the source of the grief, It's mainly through how we experience the grief, the sorrow with Christ and endure through it that joy rises. It gives birth through us. The first thing I want to just talk about is how this is connected. We've been looking at all these different passages in Scripture that talk about these big returns back to God. Even now, return back to me. And some of them are really big prophets laying down really heavy words to people who are very far away from God. And in this case, this is Paul already reflecting on a return that's already happened amongst these people. A return that's already happened. So part of what we're looking at is, how do you go back to God? How do I return back to God? How do I build this relationship with God? Maybe I do feel really far off. One of the things I mentioned was true repentance. Does anyone remember that? What does true repentance look like last week? And I said it was three things. If you were an amazing note taker, you got it. I didn't actually spend that much time on it, so I wanted to repeat it. That true repentance is directed by God. It's up on the screen, I think. True repentance is directed by God. It responds to grace, and it produces obedience. True repentance. You can see this pattern in lots of different situations among the people in the Bible. Directed by God, responding to grace, and producing repentance. So Paul, what he's doing in this letter is he's connecting, I sent this really hard letter challenging you to follow Christ. And look at what's happened. He connects what they've done to true repentance. Look in verse 9 what he says. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. So it's interesting how the letter caused grief and sorrow, but somehow in the end didn't actually harm the people involved. It's interesting to think that way. There's a word that repeats all over this passage. It's in the Greek, it's called lupe, which is a word for sorrow, grief, and mourning. And you can see it used several different ways. Arthur used one of them earlier, talking about Jesus in the garden, going to the cross. Jesus in the garden, when he comes back to the disciples, and they're asleep, they fell asleep while he was praying. He's exhausted from sorrow. That's what Luke tells us. Or also, the disciples... He tells the disciples, Jesus, that the disciples will be filled with grief when he leaves them. He tells them he will depart from them. I'll go back to that later in the message. And then in 1 Peter, this is a good one to, to hear. 1 Peter 1.6, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief. 
you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And what this speaks to is that the pain and the sadness, the loss, division, and hardship, all of which, and you, I imagine that as I talk about this, your own story and hurt will, will be present to you. The ways you've experienced pain and hardship. All these things, God actually promises his disciples. He promises they will experience hardship. But he also promises that he'll use the hardship, he'll use the sorrow to guide his people towards more fully receiving his love, more fully receiving his joy, that he's using it for a purpose well beyond anything I could ever plan, well beyond anything you could plan. He's using it to prepare us to be in his presence. It's an incredible thing that God does. So, but the kind of sorrow here, and I, and I want to just explain this, it's not just Monday blues like, oh, it snowed again. It's not that. This goes deeper. This goes deeper into what you don't, you don't just, not just what happened last week, but what has been following you your whole, whole life. A deeper sorrow that's never been met with true love and grace, or a deeper conflict that you've faced personally amongst friends and family that you've never been able to get beyond. And it's a grief that God wants to speak to today. What Paul is saying here is it's about much more than just feeling bad or having a bad season of life. You can see this in verse 10 if you're still reading with me. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So he's drawing a difference already, and this is one of the things I'm going to look at next if you're following me. How is worldly sorrow different than godly sorrow. I did not realize there were different categories. I thought there was just sorrow. Well, he is going to help us know the difference. The first I'm going to look at is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, which brings death, as he says. And this is not, I wanted to mention this here because I find that what happens as you deal with very difficult things, as each of us deal with very difficult things, it is very dangerous and easy for us to feel like we are our sadness. We are our pain. We are our sorrow. You don't know me if you don't know that I am that struggle. I am that pain. And that's not how God sees us. Yes, we feel those things. Yes, we hold those things. Yes, we endure with those things. But that is not who I am, nor is it who you are. I think, and I'm going to go deep into the canon of Winnie the Pooh a little bit. We got some characters here that I think help at least me understand some of the differences, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, without stretching it too much. But worldly sorrow, I think of Eeyore, which I, I have all the compassion for Eeyore. I mean, I don't know if he ever makes, I don't know if he ever gets a house that stays up. But poor Eeyore, we have to be mindful of this Eeyore impulse where you become the loss, you become the hurts and pain, and you never get past it. This is very <laughs> different than saying, I don't feel pain, I don't feel struggle. I, I think all of us have struggles. It doesn't matter who you are, you have struggles. You've experienced sorrow. One kind or the other, you have it. And part of that is feeling it and dealing, and dealing with it honestly. But the other thing that Paul helps us with, if you look in verse 10, is trying to help us identify what's worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, you have to look at the outcome. The outcome of when you have felt deep sadness or hurt or pain or frustration. What's the outcome? Because that tells you a little bit about what it actually was if you look back. Sometimes it's looking back that you understand more fully what it was. 
Worldly sorrow deals with the consequences of sin, unwelcome consequences, things that I don't want for you and you probably wouldn't want for me. And yes, we end up regretting it in the midst of it. You know, oh, I, maybe something it's something I did. I acted foolishly. I didn't do the right thing in that situation. But repentance must involve all of us. It involves each of us in this room. If we're truly going to repent, it involves all of us. And a lot of times, just acknowledging that something was wrong is not enough. Acknowledging was wrong is not going to necessarily amount to repentance because I could still be defiant and say, well, I did it wrong, but it didn't matter. That doesn't sound like repentance to anyone in this room. So worldly sorrow, as I've already said, it brings death. So that's the outcome. Death, which if you're wondering how I, what, what does it mean to bring death? It brings separation from God. That's what true death is. Separation, alienation from God. So what's the outcome? As I embrace this kind of specific sorrow and sadness and struggle that I have, or each of us have, how I'm holding it, how I'm embracing it, does it lead me towards God or away from God? How I'm holding it, how I'm experiencing that today, does that lead me toward God or does it lead me away from God? There are a couple different examples in the Bible. I think of Esau when he gets completely gypped and sells his blessing <laughs> to his son. I don't know if you're familiar with that story. He sells his blessing to his son, and he goes to his father, and he's very sad. He's very sor- for- sorrowful about what happened, but that doesn't mean that there's been a change that happened in his heart. He's just mad. I think of Esau, and then on contrast, I think of someone like David, King David, if you know David's story, where David actually, in the midst of great heights and trust with God, falls very low. And when he falls very low, he responds back to God in what I would say is true repentance. You can see Psalm 51 for that. He comes back completely to God. And the result, the outcome, results in life, in David's life. He he is revived and restored in fellowship with God. That doesn't happen with Esau, just to kind of explain two different examples. So that's worldly sorrow a little bit. If you imagine Eeyore, it's like, ooh, stuck. Stuck in the sorrow. And then what is godly sorrow? What Paul says a little bit here actually says more about it, which is really helpful. Godly sorrow is that while God is the comforter, he also intends for us to feel sorrow a little bit, but he uses it it to produce life in us. He uses it to produce life in us. And if the outcome of worldly sorrow is death, the result of godly sorrow is life leading towards the path of life. There's a few things that Paul mentions here I wanted to highlight. Verses 9, 10, even 12, is that godly sorrow brings repentance. That's what Paul has seen happen in the Corinthian church. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It's a return to the good, to the purpose of what is happening in that community. For us, repentance looks like a return to what's happening in this church, in this community. And in this way, sorrow corrects the people. It corrects them to be a part of what God is doing. That repentance is highlighting salvation. That's the other word that Paul used here. That it leads to salvation without regret. That's also life, if you're going to look at the definition of life. That I'm found in rescue with God. And that there's no regret. That I'm, I am healed and moved past it. The other thing he mentions that is just kind of a rung on of different phrases, but it speaks to this revival of life that's happened, is in verse 10. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. 
What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to seek justice done. Godly sorrow produces godly desire. If you're actually being moved by conviction of the Spirit to say, you know, this is wrong, you're not going to be moved towards being nonchalant or passive or apathetic. You're going to deeply care about what's happening. That actually being moved towards God and towards life in God means I care about what happens today. I care about what happens to each of you, what happens to the people I'm going to interact with later today. I care because God is moving. And I care about what God cares about, not just what I selfishly care about, because I selfishly care about lots of things. That is not leading me closer to life with God. Verse 12, it says this. So even though I wrote to you, so that before God you could see for yourself how devoted you are. That Paul, knowing and loving this church in the midst of how complicated their issues are, is basically is believing that after he shared words of humility but challenge, that their devotion to God would be revived, that they would be found in life. And what Paul does towards the end of this passage is he praises God for the outcome. He says thanks to God. Thank you that you brought these people together. He's relieved when he hears Titus coming. He even sees Titus, which is a, just a detail in the text. But Titus is deeply encouraged and filled with joy because of hearing that, oh, that letter was really rough. Why did you send me with that letter? <laughs> but it worked. It led people back to God. But one of the things that I mentioned, I'm, I'm basically drawing these comparisons. So we have Eeyore with godly sorrow. Well, I would say that maybe the Winnie the, Poony can, Winnie the Pooh canon might be someone like Winnie the Pooh. And what I mean by that is that, I mean, I identify with Winnie the Pooh for sure. But the, it's this idea that he experiences sorrow, but he does something about it. He doesn't just sit with it. He's active and moving towards, and, and basically moving towards the person. Maybe he wants to fix the problem. Maybe he just puts his, his foot in his mouth. He does all those things. But he is active and moving with his heart towards loving the people around him versus Eeyore is lost and stuck. How do you know the difference? There is a couple things there, of course. But when you think about your own life, your own story, how do I figure out, am I leaning into a worldly sorrow posture or am I leaning into a godly sorrow thing? Because it's less situational, circumstantial, and more how I am walking with it, if that makes sense. It's how I'm walking with it that makes the difference between these two things. And I was just praying about what, what's the story or an experience I could share with you about how I've gone through this. And I think years ago, way before I could even convince Christy to go on a date with me, all these things, you know. I, I think of this time that I was in sorrow. I was post-college. I was serving in the church. I was working. And I just felt, I, I just didn't know where I was. I felt lost. I didn't feel like I had a sense of purpose. And I felt alone. I felt convicted by all these things in my heart, whether it's I'm, I'm you know, I'm doing things that aren't great or I'm doing things, I, sh I should be doing other things. And I felt far away from God. I felt alone. 
And I remember I went to a church function. It was a, like a fall event or something like that. I, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember I've reflected on Christy because I think Christy saw me at that event where I just looked sad. <laughs> I looked like I, I, I looked somber, and it's because I was. It was an expression of my heart, but I came to the church and just felt the comfort of the people. I felt the love of the people. I did not have to change how I felt. I could just be how I was. And as I came, I just felt like, oh, this is what it's like to move towards God in the midst of sorrow. I'm not going to stay alone. I'm not going to just stay home. I show up and I just, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm going to be with people who I know point me to Jesus and point me to love. And that I, they will hold this sadness with me and also remind me of the hope and life that is in Jesus. Hope, remind me of the hope and life that is in God. I remember that because that night or that time in my life, that easily could have become a worldly sorrow moment. I don't even, the term worldly sorrow, like it's just hard for me to sometimes, because that's what it was. But it could have been this self-centered focus on my own life, my own struggles, except what it became through the love and support of the church. It became much more of being with people who helped me focus on God and how God's called me to be a part of the church, part of his body, And so I imagine for each of you, with whatever sorrow the Spirit is drawing you closer into right now, that option is for you right now. How do I hold this horrible thing and allow it to also help me see God more? Or does this just lead me to focus more on myself? God can't help me. God can't hold me. God can't be with me in the midst of this. Is this what it causes me to be? You know, my hope is that it is the the first as opposed to the second, but it could easily go either way. I've been there either way. And I want us to hear Jesus' words in John 16. Basically, what he promises to his disciples is part of this hardship, is part of when we face this world that is broken. He warns them what to expect. John 16, verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. What a promise. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Do I remember I said that earlier because this is God's promise to us that no matter what our sorrows are, our grief, our pain, that Jesus promises that this will be turned to joy. How? That's obviously my question. But then he goes on in the next verse to describe a woman giving birth. He describes the pain of labor, not something I really understand, but he talks about it and says, all that pain, all that struggle, when the child arrives and is born, the mother... <laughs> Maybe he doesn't, you know, what he says is forgets the anguish. That the sorrow was horrible, but nothing compared to the joy of a child being born. A joy, the joy of a child being born and coming to the world. And then he ends in the next verse saying this, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now, I think about our church, and I think about the church in the world, and I think a lot of churches, a lot of believers feel pretty beaten up. We feel pretty discouraged, and I'm included in the bunch. 
But what I fully believe is that God is preparing and shaping and forming us into a more beautiful church, a more beautiful bride of Christ, a deeper heart, a deeper capacity to practice and show love to each other and witness to the world. I fully believe this. And that is not possible if we do not also lay down the things that don't matter. If we do not also hold the things that are incredibly difficult and trust them to God. So I want to make three application points for what I think Paul is, is affirming in the Corinthian church's response and also what Jesus says. And the first one is to trust God is with you in your sorrow. To trust God is with you in your sorrow. Jesus invites people to come. He says that the mourning, those who mourn will be blessed in the Beatitudes. But it's true that God uses all of our weaknesses, all of our weakness, and he's present with us in pain. One of the books that I quoted last week, and I'm going to read another quote from you this week, just, it caught me this week. And it's this book, Gentle and Lowly, talking about the deep heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And this is what it says. I'm going to read it to you. The words will be on the screen. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like life is passing us by, when it seems that our one shot at, significant, at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when a family member betrays us, when we feel, feel deeply misunderstood, when we are laughed at by the impressive, in short, when the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel there. Right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing looks like and sits close with us and embraces us with us. Solidarity. Jesus is there with you. And whatever story you're living into, whatever chapter you wish would just be done, he's there with you. We must not treat our sorrow and our struggles as all these things that exclude us from being with God because that's never what God intended. Instead, he says, I'm coming to you. You're in the pit. I'm going to get down low in the pit with you. Jesus becomes human and gets down low in the pit with each of us and says, you're hurting. I'm here with you. I'm going to bring you out. So the call and invitation is to return to him by trusting him, that you can hold whatever side you feel teetering on, that you can hold this with God and you can trust him in the midst of it, that he knows how this chapter of life will end for you. He knows the future chapters and he knows what he has planned for you in eternity. That's the first application point. The second application point is what we hear Paul already doing in this, in the midst of this really hard thing that happened in this church that he loves, is he says, return to God through giving thanks. And he's really intentional about that. I don't think the letter would flow this way. He thanks God so much for how the church responded to this letter the way he did in, in 2 Corinthians. He's overwhelmed with joy in the midst of distress. And it's by giving thanks. You think about this practice. To intentionally thank God in the midst of your day, repeatedly through the day, really does reorient your heart. And Paul is praising God and intentionally engaging. And that's the difference. If you're going to go Pooh Bear and Eeyore, you can just, if that's not helping you, please set it aside. But to intentionally pursue healing 
resolution and hope through love as opposed to just saying, I'm done with this. Because when you say, I'm done with this, your heart turns bitter. You become lost. You don't have ways to seek hope and healing. And that's not what God wants for you, nor does anyone who cares for you, nor does that person want that for you. I don't want that for you. Third application point. First was trust God with your grief. The second was intentionally give thanks. That's how we return back to God. And the third one is that returning to God will lead to reconciliation with each other. This is this beautiful thing that we see time and time again in the word of God that I can't come back to God if I haven't tried to make amends with my neighbor. I can't come back to God if, I, if I've harmed and angered my sister or I've done something that's wrong and haven't confessed that. Like, how can I not practice that with the people around me if God has done all he can to give me clear access to him? You know, I, I think about Paul's words. They were hard words, but they were honest words. And when we want to say honest things, we have to check our egos at the door and make sure we're being completely humble. But we are called to be honest with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called to be honest. Paul took a risk when he sent the letter he did. It'd be amazing to read it. But he did this through honesty. What he also says in 2 Corinthians, which is just a beautiful thing to remember and it'll just echo in your mind when you remember, is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. From God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. The whole point and function of us being reconciled to God is to share that love with others. It's right smack dab on the back of our wall of our building, on our website, and something that we should preach to ourselves every single day. And this takes hard work. It's a lot easier for me to not be honest and not be honest with my teeth when something's happening that I don't like. But if I deeply love people in my life, I will be genuine with them. I will be genuine in wanting to see them restored to God. And that is not possible if I'm dishonest, if I'm superficial. It is not possible. In order for transformation to come to our hearts, for that sadness and sorrow to become the kind of sadness and sorrow that leads us to life with God, we must trust God with our grief. We must return to him by giving thanks intentionally. And then we also must return to him by also seeking to make amends and healing with each other. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. One of the things that's so hard and weighty about this is that there's, there, there are, when, I, when I go into this place, I just think of name after name after name, a person I want to run to and I want to hug. Or I want to tell them I love them and care for them. And maybe that's your heart today. But I want you to know that as you go through this place, as you're trying to figure out how to respond to your pain and sadness, the key in all cases is the God who comforts the downcast. The key is the one who is the hope, the source of refuge, the one who turns our suffering to joy. And that is the one that we turn to when we look to celebrate the table. That he is with us and then we trust them. That he knows how bad it hurts. He knows how bad the fears in our minds are, and he is not leaving us alone. He is with us, and he is with you. And so I invite you in this time, as you prepare your hearts for communion, as you prepare to receive the grace of the gospel through the table, that you know that it's not because of anything that you've done, 
but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And that this moment is always intended to be a commissioning sending moment, that we are sent out to the world to reflect the love of God together as people who, yeah, we know suffering, but we also know what joy feels like. We also know what it's like to be forgiven. We also know what it's like to live into the promises that will never leave us or forsake us. So please join me in praying. Lord, I thank you for how merciful you are to us. We do not deserve your love. We do not deserve your care, your patience, and yet you give it over and over again. And all of us in our own way, we find ourselves in the pit. We find ourselves feeling forsaken, alone, dealing with sorrow, alone. And you enter in with us and you hold this with us. And you in your soft voice remind us that you are our present help in time of trouble. You are our refuge. You are our rock. You are our strength. And Lord, I just pray that would be the good news set on each person's heart here and joining us online. That Lord, that there would be no lies or deception that would take us away from this reality of being so close and near and that that is what transforms our suffering, your nearness and your presence. Please, Lord, help us to trust you, to give thanks, and to share that love with each other. In Jesus' name, amen.